Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Cooper Hibbert of Seaman Livestock in Adele, Montana. I stole this line from their website, but I think it gives a good kind of description of their operation and the highlights, a lot of the things that I'm looking forward to talking with him about today. But Seaman Livestock is a many generation family business dedicated to sustaining land, water, livestock, wildlife, and people, which is, you know, kind of all all of the things that they have. Uh, you know, that they're engaged with and whatnot. And I think that's just a really cool, cool way to describe it. But I'm really grateful, Cooper. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy day and busy season to join me and, and welcome to the Herd Quitter podcast. Glad to be here, Jared. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So so right off the bat, you know, that kind of description I, I found there, it talks about it being a family business. And so I'm I'm curious if, you know, if you're willing to share a little bit of the family history and how your family arrived where you are and maybe some of the progression of how the ranch came to be what it is today. Yeah. So, um, Sieben livestock company was founded by my great, great grandfather, Henry Sieben, who, um, his family immigrated from Germany when he was two and his mother died in voyage, either crossing the Atlantic or shortly thereafter. And he was one of about six kids and they settled in Dutch bottom, Illinois and his father couldn't really raise them. Uh, it was a farming community, a German farming community in Illinois, and his father couldn't really raise them. So he farmed farmed them out to his neighbors. And so Henry was was raised by farm family in the area and basically was given a eighth grade education and clothed and fed in exchange for doing farm chores. Mm-hmm. And when he was 17, he and one of his brothers and two friends basically walked out with a wagon train from Illinois and they're headed to Oregon, hmm. um, but got waylaid because a few of the trails were closed down because of the, the conflicts with the Sioux tribe at the time. And he ended up at the Galton Valley. And so he walked out from Illinois. He got into freighting. He's, he'd freight from Fort Benton, which is the last stop on the Missouri river to mining camps all over the West, all over Montana, Virginia city, all the way down to Corinne, Utah, and, um, he ended up, he did that for a number of years and he started buying old used up freight oxen from other freighters and fattening on, them on grass and selling them to mining camps and, and made a healthy profit doing that. And that's how he got into, into ranching. And at the time he was homesteaded in the Chestnut Valley, which is Cascade, Montana, uh, which is our closest town. And it was a free range days and every fall he'd find his cattle in the same place. And he told himself, if you could ever afford to buy a ranch, that's where he wanted it to be. And that's where we are. That's where Seaman Livestock Company is today. So he, he ended up um, surviving the free range days and surviving through the horrible winter that Charlie Russell had the last of the 5,000 painting about and became incredibly successful and bought and sold ranches all over the state and Seaman Livestock Company was the last ranch that he bought. And then he was, he thought he was, he was done. So at the end of his career, he had two ranches 
Sieben Ranch and Sieben Livestock. And he had two daughters and each daughter was gifted a ranch. And so the daughter, my great grandmother, Margaret, who was gifted Sieben Livestock Company, was married to a Hibbard. And the the ranch has been in the Hibbard name ever since. And we were historically a sheep ranch through both world wars. That's just where the market market was. Henry Sieben considered himself more of a cowman, but that this the quote was something like, but sheep was where the business was at. And so <laughs> He was, a, yeah. he was a businessman. And, um, and then, you know, the market changed in the fifties and sixties. And so we changed with it and became predominantly cattle in like the 1960s and have been a cattle and predominantly cattle and some sheep ever since, uh, we've gotten in and out of having bands of sheep in these last few decades and currently have just, uh, just over a hundred ewes right now and, mm. but are mostly cow calf and yearling. And about 20 years ago, we we made the big jump. It was 22 years ago in 2000, made the big jump from calving in February and March, like most places in Montana to calving in, in June, June and July. That initial jump was to May and that was still too early for us. We're, we're very, um, just to kind of give context to at least some of the things that I think we'll be talking about. You, you have to under understand the layout of the ranch and that, that helps flesh out maybe some of the reasoning behind our decisions. So we go from like 42, 4,300 feet up to 7,800 feet in elevation. And if you're to imagine that ladder, and really it's an inverse pyramid, if you're to map out like our grass resources and what we have, the amount of grass we have in each of those zones. So at the bottom of the pyramid would be our winter zone. And then and then we'd have our shoulder country or transition zone and then our summer country. So we're heavily weighted in, in our summer grass, very, very limited in our hay ground and winter grazing areas and just winter areas in, in general. And so that calving in February and March just wasn't a good fit for us. And so they took that leap. Um, that would have been my uncle Chase and my dad and uncle Witt and the ranch crew at the time. They kicked that ball around for a number of years just really fleshing out the feasibility of what it'd be like to, to change calving to, um, May, June. So they changed it to May. Um, but that was still too early because, because of that inverse pyramid, Hmm. it was still too early to truly match the cow's production cycle with the grass cycle. Yeah. Um, and so they bumped it back a little bit later to early June. Right now we're at like May 28th. Um, and it's still not perfect. Our growing season's so short. It's just, it's it's really, no matter which way we cut it, it's a it's a compromise of sorts. There isn't there isn't just the absolute sweet spot, at least that we we haven't found it yet. So we calve in June and July, and we hold our calves over the winter, and we run them as yearlings the following year, and sell them as long yearlings the following fall. And that way we're able to capitalize on that excess of grass that I was talking about with the summer zone. Yeah. So that's, we, we raise all of our own hay because we are at the end of a County road. And so we have to pay a, a pretty heavy premium, you know, 20 to $30 over what our neighbors at the bottom of the road would have to pay for hay. And so really we, we try and buy as little hay as possible because of that. And, um, that, that is also kind of structured structured how we do things, um, by calving in June and July, we started winter grazing our cows out 20 years ago. And that's been a really neat evolution to see. 
and progression of what we've done and where we are um, because we're able to get by with so much more since our cows are in their second, third trimester, mm-hmm. their lowest nutritional demand through the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in the Chinook zone of Montana. So we get these high, not only high winds that clear snow off, but warm winds at times um, that brings a fast melt event. And so it's fairly uncommon for us to be completely snow packed and not able to graze. And if the snow conditions are right, we can still graze through like two, two and a half feet of snow. Um, but if it's gets crusted over, then, then that gets a little, that gets a little tough. Two, two and a half feet of snow. Is that what you said? They'll graze through. Oh yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. It's a pretty cool site when you, when you drive by what we call our mob, which would be the, yeah. In the winter, that's our four-year-olds and up. Okay. The twos and threes are run separate sure. through the winter. And then come May, the three-year-olds get joined up with the mob. And then that's our mob. It's one management group. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a pretty cool site to drive by. I bet. 1,200 <laughs> head with their yeah. heads down. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't see their heads, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah. that is and something. Then, and then they come up and they've got grass hanging out of both sides of the mouth. And <laughs> places are all white. It's pretty neat. Yeah. How much... Uh, I mean, when, when, if you're able to do that, how much time of the year do you have to feed hay? Is it kind of a supplement or is there a certain time where you just can't, you just can't make do without it? Yeah. So I want to paint that picture a little bit better. I'm not saying that we don't feed hay at all. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of the appeal to moving our calving date later, um, this was 22 years ago Mm -hmm. was thinking that we'd get away from moving, feeding hay almost completely. But really, um, the opportunity cost of running our yearlings, our own yearlings on that summer grass was too great. It outweighed the cost of selling our calves is like, you know, four weight, yearling, sure. four weight calves in the fall. It, we're much further ahead if we run them as long yearlings. As so opposed to all stockpiling the, it for your cows, you're saying. Kind of like yeah. you could have had two options, either A, stockpile this grass for your cows and sell the calves or B, graze it all and use it for yearlings the following year kind of is that um well the point i'm trying to make is that all of the hay that we saved from not feeding our cows in the winter just got shifted and it's now to our we're feeding our calves yeah and our our young heifers sure sure coming through and coming three-year-olds so we still feed a lot of hay it's just not to our aged cows um but this last I'd argue it's a more uh, efficient use of hay because not only are we still growing out of a fetus, but we're raising a calf for a competitive cost to gain, you know? Um, so it's a better, more efficient use of, of hay, I argue. Um, and then this, well, the transition back to our mob and winter grazing them, um, I'd say on average in the last five years, we've fed, Per cow through the winter, 125 pounds to get them through through the winter. So the lowest point was 12 pounds. That one year we fed 12 pounds once. Um, last year was the highest that we fed, and that was um, 330 pounds per cow. Wow! And the reason that that was the highest wasn't because we had a really tough winter. We didn't. We had a very open winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a lot of temperature swings, like every week a new front would come in. And what we found is, um, feeding on the front end of storms, you know, a a day before the storm gets there, making sure those cows have full belly and just feeding on the front end of storms, half ration, even Mm -hmm. just really, really buffers that. Um, and I'm sure 
most or all your listeners probably know this already, but this was a hard lesson for me to learn because <laughs> once we get, it's like once you, once you start having successes with uh, winter grazing and, and, and not having to feed hay, you get sucked into this conservation mindset of, of, you know, these resources are really precious. We can do without, and then, and then you can, it's true for me anyways, really ask too much of your cows. And so instead of, I would always wait to see how bad the storm was. And it's like, Oh, sure. it's pretty bad. We should probably feed our cows. Well, that's yeah. certainly way too late. We've already yeah. lost, lost body condition. We've burnt through fat reserves. It took us a very long time mm-hmm. to build up and that we put a lot of hard work into maintaining. And really that's the name of the game is just building and maintaining body condition, um, in this model that we're in, which is basically mostly reliant on, on mother nature. You know, we, we aren't propping, we aren't propping our program up with, with outside with feedstuffs. We're, we're certainly using feedstuffs strategically. I'm, I'm of the mindset that there's a time where you can spend a dollar on supplement and get $3 back. I'm not a no input guy. Mm -hmm. I'm a strategic input type philosophy. And so anyway, last year we fed, we fed 330 pounds per cow. And most of that was just, just to get them through the, these cold snaps and to buffer Mm -hmm. storms and our cows never really missed a beat. Mm -hmm. Um, and so to, just to paint the picture of what our winter grazing program looks like, cause I think this is one of our biggest successes in this, this last decade is getting this sucker dialed in. And the reason it's one of our biggest successes, if you remember that inverse pyramid, I painted it yeah. for you, the winter zone, the very bottom, that was our bottleneck that, that yeah. winter zone really dictated what our carrying capacity could be and how many cattle, what our stocking rate was, how many cattle we could run, which is our, our engine for gen- generating revenue. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what we started doing about seven, seven years ago, I was exposed to Johann Zeitzman and have become an avid follower of Zeitzman. I've been fortunate enough to go to a few of his workshops and we started practicing non-selective grazing, especially in the winter. And so when I came, I came home in, uh, 2013, the average graze period for our winter grazing zone was four and a half days. And then that next year we made it two days and it was two days for a while. And then about seven years ago, it became one day. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we've got anywhere from, uh, in the last seven years, it's been anywhere from 900 to 1200 cows in one group getting moved daily through the winter, sometimes twice a day, non-selective mm-hmm. grazing events. Yeah. And the, the real key to that for us is they're seeing fresh feed every single day. We move them when they're full. And so we take that frenetic competitive grazing mob mentality behavior. And we, it's typically a negative and people talk about that in a negative sense of like a reason why not to do high density, short duration grazing is because you create this mob mentality in your cows and they start going crazy. I've certainly seen that and it's not good and it's not fun, but what we've learned is if we move them when, when they're full, when they're ruminating and they themselves otherwise wouldn't be choosing to graze we kickstart that competitive instinct and we basically start force feeding them. They, they want to get to that piece of grass before the other cow does. And so they start grazing when they otherwise wouldn't. And so they eat more in a daily day in day out than they otherwise would. And so we're, we're able to, by doing that, we're grazing from 
our winter grazing season is typically like December 15th until May 15th. And from December 15th to May 15th, the last two years, once we really figured out that little nugget of wisdom right there, how big of an effect that that can make. Last two winters, we've increased body condition by three quarters throughout the whole winter, which in that time period is about two thirds of a pound per head per day, average daily gain mm. without supplement, mm -hmm. no supplement. Yeah. The, it, we did feed them hay to get them through storms, yeah. but it wasn't supplement. It, yeah. We weren't it was no different than it was just, before. The, the change yeah. came purely from that management decision there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, huh. And also by non-selective grazing, we're laying down, you know, whatever plant that isn't. Are, are you familiar with non-selective grazing philosophy? Yep. Yep. Okay. So whichever plant, whatever plants aren't being grazed are being trampled down. Yeah. And when we're running at that high of a density, it's not only knocked down, it's actually more often than not pressed into the soil. And so the soil decomposition process gets kickstarted. And, yeah. Um, what kind of a density are you able to reach there in that environment? Um, so we'd be running this last winter was 1200 to 1300 head, depending on which part of the season and our grazes were as small as six acres for a day and as high as 22, okay. I want to say, or 25. And okay. so that's kind of snow so, conditions dependent, um, forage yeah. density. This, I want to also say that this is all on native, native range. It's, mm -hmm. So we've, and we have a lot of rest fescue and Idaho fescue and green needle grass that maintain their green and their protein throughout the winter. So that that's sure. Definitely helps us accomplish that whole tidbit that I gave you that we gained three, yeah. three quarters of body condition over the winter without supplement is because we're we're dealing with there's green grass under there. Yeah, yeah. So I, if they're you know roughly twelve hundred pound cows, that's sixty to two hundred forty thousand pounds of stock density. That's pretty darn good for that mm -hmm. environment because that's that's a lot of times that two hundred forty thousand pounds is what we we get here in Minnesota with a lot more probably dense forage stands. We can mm -hmm. reach higher, but uh, you know, that, 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 that's pretty impressive. Um, cool. And well, I guess maybe that'll move on to another discussion. I'm curious how that management maybe has impacted the actual landscapes if you've seen it and changes there. But before we get to that on the winter grazing, just a logistical piece, how do you, how are you moving them daily? Uh, is it, is that, do you have permanent, you know, permanent paddocks? Do you do poly in winter? How, how are you actually logistically moving them every day through the winter? It's mostly all polywire. Okay. Um, we are, we have plans of putting in more permanent infrastructure to just make that a little bit more, more sustainable year in, year out, but it's all, it is all polywire. Um, and one of my coworkers manages that mm. through the winter. He takes care of the mob. That's his responsibility. And he just, he just absolutely loves it. We're incredibly fortunate to have, have him, and the neat thing about Dave is he wasn't ever really exposed to this before he came really? here. He was Cowboy's Cowboy, you know, and he's in his mid fifties and, you know, he's just passionate about land and animals and wildlife. And, and he, he's out there every day with his poly, with his cows, moving them. And he sincerely believes in what he's doing. You know, he, he says that he's changing the world one bite at a time. And yeah. on, on that note, what we have seen 
in the last seven years since we started grazing non-selectively. It's been the driest years in the history of the ranch. Mm -hmm. And um, we've increased our forage harvest and production rate just through our grazing management by, on average, through the whole winter zone, 200% in seven seven years. So we basically got handed two more yeah. winter zones. So we have three times as many acres, basically. Wow. Um, just from changing how we thought about it and how we approached and our willingness to to be honest with what we're seeing and, and mm-hmm. to fess up to our mistakes and be observant and put in the hard work mm-hmm. um, and be disciplined about showing up every day, you know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the, the highest is, so last year was the driest year in the history of the ranch. And it, I mean, it was bad in this part of the world. A lot of the, all of our neighbors had to destock 20 to 40% or, this last year and our mob that we were winter grazing was 20% bigger. And yeah. not only that, we gained body condition, three quarters of body condition throughout the winter. And we broke all of our harvest rate records. One of which had a eight over an 800% increase in forage harvest and production rate in the last seven years. Like the, this one particular past year. Wow. What do you, I mean, what do you attribute that kind of like in a drought year? I don't know. Like I've always believed it makes you more resilient to be a good manager and whatnot in these times. But it seems like even in drought years, good management still, you still see it. You still get affected, but you're, you actually managed to continue to increase your numbers in a, in the worst drought year. I mean, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> I agree. I think um, that's what's so exciting. Last year was really a proof in the pudding um, for us. And it, you know, it was painful and it certainly wasn't easy and it's never fun to watch other, other people have to destock. Like it was just a, it was a bad situation, but we'd, we'd been really sticking our necks out and trying new things, just believing that like, this has got to work, this has got to work. And then seeing, seeing these little, um, affirmations and rewards and then this last year was just like yeah all that all all that hard work really paid off um you know we certainly did feel it with our irrigation water and with our hay ground hay hay production was um less than two-thirds of normal these last two years so it's still it's still very real and 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 we're certainly affected by the drought that we've been in and the high temperatures and fires and everything else but it's nice to have a little win every now and then and everyone deserves a little win um so that yeah it was certainly certainly we felt we we felt good about it yeah well i just think of what that means like even financially for the business as a whole i mean people talk about that'll never pencil you spend all day out building fence it's just more labor doesn't really make any benefit but i mean you've already talked about the production benefits but when everybody else is destocking in a drought like this 
obviously that results in higher prices we're seeing now in our calf prices and everything. And so they may be, you know, they're destocking and slightly getting made up for and, you know, cost of price of calves where you didn't have to sell your cattle at a low. You're coming in with a higher cattle, you know, higher number of herds, more calves, and are fully able to capture the benefits that are going to come from these higher prices. Now it's pretty, pretty impressive. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we actually did end up buying cows and pairs of calves these last two years, just, just to capitalize on that. And, you know, it, it has started to catch some attention and people are starting to pay attention and really curious about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so we started holding some winter grazing workshops these last two winters here on the ranch where people show up and it's just out in the field. And, um, I basically talk about the same progression of what you and I are discussing and these pretty insane statistics, you know, of what we've been seeing and what it, what it means. But then the whole point to get people out on, on the ground was to just take the mystique out of it. It's like anyone can do this mm. and to hopefully uh, to address your point, like, um, it's really, if you structure it right, it's really not that much time. It's not that much labor. It's just making it happen. It's mm-hmm. and being disciplined about it. Um, mm-hmm. and putting in the time on the front end, like you really have to put in the time on the front end. And kind of one of the things we talk about is just building these small experiments, um, to see what is possible for you and your place. And, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. a phrase from Burke Teichert that I love so much is fail fast, fail cheap, fail forward, which mm-hmm. we've embraced wholeheartedly. And that's really a lot of, we set up our experiments kind of under that motto. And that's how we've gotten to where we are today is just like, yeah, let's try one day graze. Let's try a non non-selective graze. And then we'll, we'll go back to what we're comfortable with on the other side of the fence line. And let's just see, see what, see what happens, see what it takes from us, see what the ground, how the ground responds, see how the cows like it. Um, and you know, if we, if we screw up, we screw up, it's a four hour screw up, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and then hopefully there's something to be garnered from that, that we can be better about and move forward and figure out again, what, what is, what is possible because we do need to be, we need to figure out what is possible. Because we can't keep doing what we as an industry have been doing for the last few decades. Something's got to change. Like if you look at the just a simple equation of input costs and what we're getting for commodity prices, it's pretty bleak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I uh, was just just last week or so saw this article from the University of Nebraska. I think that uh, said the average cost to keep a cow in Nebraska was a $1,154 when you include all opportunity costs and everything and stuff like that. And, you know, I just heard somebody not too long ago selling 550 pound calves at $2 and 10 cents a pound, which is $1,155. So according to those numbers, they made a net profit of $1 and some of the highest calf prices we've seen in close to a decade, you know, I mean, since 1415, I mean, yeah, that it's no wonder why you know, people say there's no money in cattle and, and things like that is, you know, the standard industry there, there maybe really isn't, but you're, you're definitely proven the difference. That's what this, I don't know what I'm trying to do in this podcast anyway, is show people that there's a way to do things a little bit differently and that it, it has some real reward. And, uh, yeah, no, it's pretty impressive. 
So on, on, on that note, what that means for us, the feed cost savings, just from our winter grazing alone, when I came home, we were having to feed our cows anywhere from two to five weeks full, full feed just to buy time because, mm-hmm. because we didn't have the grass. Now we're resting like 45 days worth of grass and the cost savings in hay from scenario from when we were having to feed to what we're doing now is like 85 grand or something. Last time I crunched those numbers. Uh, and what we gained through just changing our grazing management to 200% increase, that's like being handed 4,500 acres of prime winter grazing ground. It's very, it, to your point, it's, it's like, it's very real. It's hard. It doesn't, the, and I think the hard thing with a lot of, a lot of these regenerative agriculture movements and the hard thing is that there, there's a real lag time to where it shows up mm-hmm. on the bottom line, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, those, those are real savings for us, but it doesn't really show up on the bottom line. You know, we're still, we're still just trying to figure out this, this model, you know, breed back calving in June and July is wonderful breeding in September and October in our environment is incredibly tough. So mm. breed back's been a really, really big problem. And there's all these other, there's all these other deals we got to deal with that make it hard to still, to stay in business, you know? Yeah. And I think there's a real, the real lag time, but the, the, the thing that is so encouraging is that kind of what we're doing with our grazing management and what we're doing with our genetics and is just putting in the cornerstones and building the foundation for this, what will hopefully be a more resilient economic engine um, that just kind of is able to move move forward and into the future. And hopefully, so I'm part of the fifth generation um, Mm -hmm. and my whole goal is that we have something viable and robust and thriving and exciting and magnetic to for the sixth generation, if they so choose. Yeah. But that's hard. The whole financially viable portion of it is very, very difficult. No, I, I believe it. And and I guess two more questions, two questions kind of off of some things you just mentioned that popped in my head, maybe a little more specific or in the weeds anyway, but is, so you talked about this 200% increase or this extra 4,500 acres. Do you think, I'm sure there's some of both, but would, do you have any idea kind of how much of that would have been accumulated by just i mean they, they talk about a lot of this western rangeland these open spaces more continuous graze models where a lot of it just is never even grazed because it's too far from water it, it's just so just utilizing what's already there how much of it comes from utilizing what's already there through your management and how much of it has come from an actual increase in productivity of the grassland does does that question make sense it does yeah so um the 4500 acres is strictly from an increased productivity in our grass Mm, okay grass and forage yeah not it's not from acres that were not accessible beforehand okay none of that and um it's just from the increased forage productivity the basically we're handed 4500 acres just by changing how we thought about grazing yeah Yeah. and how we approach grazing oh that's that's pretty cool I, i would say grazing and genetics and genetic selection go once once you kind of get to that technicality they go hand in hand without it 
Well, yeah. that's a good leading because that was going to be my next kind of my sec- second question is what changes have you made in your genetics? I guess uh, you, you mentioned it a couple times now. I'd be curious to hear what, what you've done with that. So um, it became once seven years ago, once we, well, once I was exposed to Johann Zeitzman and we started doing non-selective grazing, became very clear once we had some non-selective grazing wins that our grazing management had outpaced our genetics. And we needed to really, really dial in our focus on genetics. We needed a different type of cow in order to graze the way that we knew that we needed to graze. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Zeitzman sums it up the best where cows has a dual purpose role. One is to efficiently convert grass into beef. And two is to improve the land that she's grazing on while doing that. And if you're really going to improve the land that you're grazing on, at least is in a rapid manner, then it take, takes a different type of cow. And so what what we've done is heavily influenced by Zeitzman, but we'd been um we'd been breeding to black composite bulls for a long time now. We've been sourcing our our bulls from a uh producer that my uncle developed a relationship with and um and they're true composites. So a true composite would be five or more breeds under one hide. This is to my understanding to the, the science done out of meat animal research center in the eighties. And the benefits to composites is, so if you were to have like an F1 cross, a, a black baldy calf, that, mm-hmm. that calf has a 100% heterosis effect. It's hybrid vigor, mm-hmm. but the, the successive generation. So that calf becomes a cow, has a calf, it's heterosis effect is 50% mm-hmm. and it keeps getting diluted by half through throughout each generation. So a true composite is five or more breeds under the same hide. And, um, it has an 83 to 88% heterosis effect. And that heterosis effect, once it's a true composite does not get diluted from one generation to the next. And so we were all in on composites and the, the benefit of the heterosis effect. Um, there's a study by a, uh, economist outside of Kansas State, I believe, who equated a 100% heterosis of a cow with 100% heterosis effect of contributing 200 more dollars in tangible income to your bottom line every year. Wow! So that's like the the other snowball effect. You know, we're building our grass, and we're trying to build our our genetics to create this this tandem. Sure. efficiency right um mm-hmm. and so we've been sourcing these composite bulls but still i wanted to start to create our own composite because i there's just a few weaknesses we needed we needed to address for our environment and for how our environment means our management as well and so i sourced an obrock bull which is a breed from south central france high altitude cold climate mm-hmm. and selected for their doability on grass for hundreds of years and their um more moderate framed continental breed. So we, anyway, we have this Obrock bull and we started selecting all of our, we started selecting our own bulls as well. Hmm. And it was kind of this two pronged approach where we, we select bulls out of our mob, out of cows that were six years old and up, they calf to calf in the first cycle, body condition, six slick coat, good udders, good feet, good mothering instinct. Don't really care what the calf looks like, just that if it's a bull calf, he gets a tag and he stays intact. The other approach is we 
put a bowl or bowls in of our choosing early on our calving first calf heifers. So our our two-year-olds start calving end of May. End of June, we drop in a bull for the month of July, basically. The rest of the bull battery doesn't go out until August. So mm-hmm. the bull goes in, June 25th gets pulled July 25th. And then the rest of the bulls don't go in until August. So what happens in that scenario are, the, are heifers. Since we're a commercial operation, we don't have intercalving period uh, documents or anything like that. Um, this is the best way that we can track fertility. So our, our heifers that breed to that bull are like the most fertile, most elite heifers of that peer group. They're the ones who bred first as yearlings. They calved and recycled and reconceived in a very impressive amount of time. And then they calve the following April to that bull of our choosing. So that's how we we started to build our own composite was we brought in that Obrock bull. We put them in early on our calving first calf heifers, had a bunch of half bloods the following April. And we've taken those half bloods and put them back in early on our calving first calf heifers. And so now we're, we're starting to stack composite on top of composite. So we're kind of in phase phase one was introducing another breed. Phase two is, is uh, stacking composite on top of composite. And, um, it's been, we're pretty, we're very happy with the bulls that we've been raising from both of those programs. And I'd say two thirds or more of our bull battery is now home raised. And again, last year, kind of proof in the pudding, our four, four-year-olds in our mob through the winter grazing portion of the year, usually the four-year-olds are in the poorest shape. They're in the poorest body condition because they're lowest on the totem pole. They're new to that program. Um, they get out competed by everyone else. Our four, four-year-olds this last year, as a peer group, were in the best condition hmm. in the entire mob. Wow. The, the only difference was our, was our genetics. And so we're, we're selecting for, by selecting for that fertility on one end and also selecting for the functionality on the other, which would be the, that first prong where we, select bull calves out of our mob. We're getting early sexual maturity, which is high propensity for doability on grass, which is body condition, which is also fertility, um, calf health, all of that, mm-hmm. as well as uh, functionality in our environment with respect to our management. And it's um, it's been really encouraging and exciting to see the amount of progress that we've made on the genetic front. And it's uh, I think we're even going to be able to graze more intensively here soon in a couple more years. Once the majority of the mob is of these, this genetic makeup. So how are you quantifying, I guess, or seeing, you said you see a better fleshing or better flesh, better um, body condition score in these animals. Uh, You're selecting for more fertile animals. Um, Yeah. I guess, are there any other metrics or how are you quantifying the, the improvements that you're seeing by the genetic selections you've been making? Um, so that comment was strictly subjective, just body condition scoring. Yeah. Um, yeah. so a few, a few other items I'm throwing, throwing bulls in early on our calving first calf heifers. Mm-hmm. First year that we did that, we, it was 4% of our two-year-olds took early. Okay. 
the next year it was 12%, the next year it was 24, now we're at 36%. Wow. And so that snowball effect, that fertility snowball effect, and it's been at 36% for the last uh, two years. And we'll be preg testing here in the next couple of weeks. We'll see, we'll see where we're at. Um, and so that snowball effect has already started uh, on the fertility. Com- that to me is, I mean, there's a lot of variables thrown into that stew, right? But it's a pretty obvious trend mm-hmm. that those girls are getting, getting more fertile, at least, um, a portion of them are. Yeah. Um, and then one thing I didn't mention is, so we have all these bull calves, the, the calves that were born in April, um, out of our, what would then be three-year-olds. These would be the heifers that took early to the bulls the previous July. All those bull calves are left intact. We tag all those other bull calves out of our mob that fit our criteria. Then they all just get rolled in with our steer calves in the winter and just run as our steers would. They aren't grown out on anything special. It's just because that's a part of our, our model here is, is yearling, um, average daily gain and yearling doability over the winter. And, um, and then once they're 11, 12 or 13 months old, we'll get them in and do the hip, uh, hip height measurement with an respect to individual weight and basically get pounds per vertical inch, like the higher meat to bone ratio, which mm-hmm. has a, um, mm-hmm. high correlation with early sexual maturity and fertility. And that's, that's the main criteria that we use to select our, our bulls is okay is that right there. We also do scrotals and average daily gain in, with respect to height or individual weight. I think that that needs to put on, be put on, it needs to be made a relative metric, not absolute um, for us anyway. So yeah, that's, that's how we end up selecting them once they're yearlings. That's interesting. I, I'm, I'm always intrigued. I was having this conversation with somebody not too long ago and stuff. It, it's, you're very well you're just very intentional for kind of a a commercial producer not selling genetics you're very intentional about your genetic selection it's some people are and some a lot of people aren't and it's just interesting to hear i guess i'd be curious as to why that why what made you feel as if that was something that was well worth the time invested into all of the because there's a lot of work that goes into genetics when you start select all these things that you're talking about and that's that's time that you got to spend to take in animal, take measurements and, and all the extra hassles that go into this. Why has genetic selection been so important? I mean, really it, it addresses so much of, of what we're up against now that the feed, the feed wagons taken away, you know, now that the crutch is taken away from underneath us and we're really trying to match our, our ranch to re- rely more on mother nature. And so genetics are super important for us because it, having the proper genetics allows us to graze in this way that we now know that we can and need to graze not only for the benefit of the land, um, but also so that we can stay in business. Uh, it takes, takes a certain type of cow in order to do that without supplementing her to the point where you break a bank account, you know? And from what I was seeing and reading, I'm a high believer in, in, true composites and it's really hard to find true composites out there um you know there, there's a, there's a few breeders we've been sourcing ours from Rudokovich in iowa and they've been wonderful to deal with and that's one of the few true composite breeders out there and but i still wanted to see a few changes and so i wanted to make our own composite to really capture that heterosis effect and 
longevity and doability and, uh, you know, higher disease resistance and everything that really we were up against because we're running in a pretty hard climate here. And so it was just kind of one of those deals where we needed to make it work on our own. But I also think that we've, it's not as much work as what I've made it sound like. Mm-hmm. I think we've done a pretty good job of streamlining it for a commercial operation. You know, really the extra work and, and, um, that we put in as we spend one day a year tagging bull calves in the mob, um, which would be two or three of us riding through them on horseback and mm-hmm. going around and, and roping calves in that first mm-hmm. cycle. Um, yeah. And then dropping a bull in early in July and pulling that bull, pulling the bull is probably the biggest pain. Yeah. And then it's one day in the fall after weaning, taking individual weights on those bull calves and one day in like late April, early May, that's, that's pretty in, that's pretty involved where we're taking hip heights and individual weights and scrotals and, um, rating their disposition and all that stuff. Uh, and that, I mean, that's it. It's just mm-hmm. that. Yeah. We aren't doing EPDs. We aren't doing any of that stuff. So there's very little, very little beyond, beyond that. And it's, um, and we never set out with intention to create a bull enterprise or be selling, selling bulls, but, um, people have been seeing our cows and they've been seeing what we're doing and been, and they've seen our bulls. And all of a sudden there's, there's some interest for some seabin seeping genetics um so it's it's turned it's started another small enterprise um which was never the intention and certainly doesn't take any of our we don't market or do anything like that it doesn't take any of our time it's just it just seems like it's a it's a byproduct of doing something um which i hope is right you know yeah yeah no well it's just cool to hear because i i think uh i mean obviously we're we're cooperative producers for PCC. We believe genetics and it's mm-hmm. important that they go side by side. I, I talk to people a lot who I, I know people who have wanted, you know, Oh, you're a genetic producer. I'll try one of your bowls or whatever. And I talk to them about their program and there's a very good chance that in their current program, a high input program, our genetics won't do them any favors. Uh, you know, yeah. it's not going to, it's not going to do them any good. And same thing, you know, people look at what we're doing with our cows and making them graze stocks, corn stocks with no supplement, no protein or anything like that. And they want to try that with their 16, 1700 pound cows too. Cause you know, that looks pretty good. I don't want to feed hay for another two months and, and with the wrong genetics, they're probably setting themselves up for a disaster here uh, if they do that. And it's so they do, you know, production models and, and, and genetics go so hand in hand. I, I really, you know, feel that it's important to match the genetics. So I appreciate you sharing that in a little more depth and, and it's cool to hear how that's you know, improved your, your business overall. Um, but we're already coming up close in an hour. Um, and I, I want to, I've got a few other questions, uh, two that I want to get into. Um, one of which I guess would be like the yearling side. Um, have you always kept your yearlings? Was that a decision you made back in 2000 when you moved your cattle back? Uh, and do you bring any additional yearlings in or is it all your own? I guess, talk a little more about the yearling program, if that's, that's all right. Um, we started keeping our yearling steers, I think probably in that same time frame when we changed our calving date. And most years we also bring in outside yearlings because of the excess summer grass that we were talking about earlier. Sure. 
this year, um, we're actually sell, having to sell all of our steer calves because our um, we just weren't able to put up enough hay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty tough. We, we ended up having enough irrigation water that we had to be very super diligent in how we managed it. But the springtime temperatures were, were confusing for all the improved species. They just didn't do well. And then, and then it got really hot and really dry end of July, August. And once the native range cures out, there's a, there's a very healthy elk population in the area. And we started getting 2000 head of elk down in our hay fields. And, um, that was kind of the end of the deal. So mm-hmm. it doesn't pay for us to buy hay in at the current prices and feed our calves out. So we're selling our cat, our steer calves this year, which would be the first time in maybe eight years that we've had to do that. So it's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we'll certainly be bringing a lot more outside stalkers this next year. Mm. Yeah. Is that ever something you consider selling your calves in the fall every year and just replacing them in the spring with more calves and, and skipping the winter feeding season altogether? Yeah, we have considered that. Um, okay. <laughs> this really, we've, we've really considered that a lot. And so it, once you start to peel that onion, it gets pretty, there's, there's a lot of layers there. One custom grazing doesn't bring near the returns that run our own critters do. Mm-hmm. Two, we'll still need hay for our cows. Um, And we have all this investment in our hay ground and in irrigation and in infrastructure. And we have all the hay equipment. And so part of the hay equipment are these tractors. And so in order to spread the overhead costs on these tractors, it makes sense for us to be feeding these calves out. Like that's that number is wrapped up into the cost of gain. Sure. Um, and so it's just, it's, that's when all this other stuff starts coming in. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an Um, easy, just, oh yeah, we'll just sell them every fall and buy them back in the spring. Yeah. 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 And you know, when I first, when I first came home, um, I was convinced that we could leave the calves on the cow through, through the winter or at least until February or March and wean in February or March. And, and we'd really get away from feeding hay doing that. Um, as boy, that's, that's really, really hard. And I'm, I know a lot of people have had luck with that and it works for them. And that's great. What we've, what I've found and what I currently believe in is when you look at the two different options of weaning later, weaning earlier, I'm a big believer in weaning earlier. And the, the reason why is if body condition is everything that we're managing for the best, the most efficient thing that we can do is that this is me just talking out loud. I'm sounds like I'm preaching. I'm not, I'm just, this is my current thinking. I'm just walking through these thoughts. Um, body condition is the most important thing that we have month in month out in a model, like what we're in the most efficient thing that we can do for calories fed out and calories maintained is weaning those calves early um, rather than leaving them on the cow, because when feeding a feeding and putting weight on a four weight calf takes much fewer calories than it does for a pair. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and when we have limited resources, like what we do with our hay and, and outside supplements and just our willingness to spend money on things, that's just a much, much more appealing scenario to me than Mm -hmm. leaving the calf on the cow. And it's like, once you separate the two, you have so much more control as well. Um, it's like if, if the calf is on the cow, man, it's really, really hard to maintain that condition. And that supplement to the calf through her milk is incredibly inefficient. I forget the data on that. Um, but calories in versus calories out is like really, really inefficient. Um, there's, there's certainly a lot lost there with epigenetics and learned behavior. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, there, there's a lot of things to be considered in that, but for us in our model, it's like weaning early is where we are currently. And it's all because of body, body condition and the efficiency of putting body condition on and maintaining at that time of the year and more efficient use of resources for building fat reserves, basically for calves and cows. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I I don't know where I've heard, and I've heard several times people talk about the epigenetic benefits, obviously, and how a calf's rumen isn't fully developed until like 10 months of being on mom or whatever, 12 months or something. I don't know. They talk about that, the benefits to keeping them on, but then other people, and I think it's Wally Olson who I've heard say, doesn't make economic sense to keep a calf on a cow past 450 pounds. And for the very reasons that you're talking about there is that it's just such an inefficient use of feed to put it through a cow to supplement the calf. And we're in a similar boat here where mid-October, late October, early November, we can get out on corn stalks, which is great feed for a dried off cow with no calf at side and when we can drop our costs so significantly for our cows and start if we have grass stockpiled which we we do get our calves on the high quality feed and our cows on the low quality feed that makes more sense than trying to feed the cows high quality feed just to supplement the calves a little bit and stuff so no brainer yeah yeah no that that absolutely makes sense to me um no good um well, in that line, I, I took off the website, you talk about managing, and I'm forgetting now all the ones that there were, but land and livestock, and we've talked about those, but then water, uh, wildlife and people, I think, and mm-hmm. maybe there's another one. Uh, we haven't talked too much about those. So uh, maybe, I guess let's start with water. How has your management impacted your stewardship of water? Well, from the grazing standpoint, I, I believe we're capturing and utilizing more water more f- efficiently because- um, of all the litter that we're laying down on the soil, you know, we have monitoring transects all, all throughout the ranch. And when we first put transects in, um, eight years ago, down, down in our winter grazing zone, the transects there read anywhere from 8% bare soil to 22% bare soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the next reading, which was five years later, the 22% bare soil was down to 2% and the 8%, all the 8% were down to zero. Everything else was down to 0% basically. And now the area that was 22% is now 0%. Mm. So we're certainly um, capturing and utilizing more rainfall. We're very diligent about our water management from, uh, we have three, three reservoirs that feed our irrigation and our irrigation we're, we're, we're cognizant of drawing those reservoirs down for um, we get pretty uncomfortable once they get low 
like really mm -hmm. low. Um, because of fish populations, there's great healthy fish populations in, in all of them. And one of them we're very sensitive to because we've been working with fish, wildlife and parks and reestablishing native West slope cutthroat trout. And so we've been working with them. We know how low we can take these reservoirs, um, mm -hmm. without compromising fish habitat. Um, and then we've been starting last year, we started building some beaver dam analogs or beaver mimicry projects to in some of these compromised riparian areas there was a one of the main drainages of the ranch was channelized in like um the 30s or 40s through a government program um to gain more hay ground basically uh but what it did was it dropped the water table uh 14 feet down at the lowest part where they channelized it, I believe it's 14 feet, which then created this cascading effect where everything up above until a culvert basically, or a dam, the water table dropped, which caused massive erosion. And um, of course, all the productivity in the ground around it dropped drastically. And so we're start, we started last year building some beaver mimicry projects to raise the water table back up to uh, hopefully uh, more normal levels and reestablish the riparian areas. And um, so that's, that's been some of the work that we've been doing with, with water. Cool. Yeah. And, and do you have, I, I think I saw on the website, you have like some hunting and stuff. Do you have any sort of fishing enterprises? I mean, is that something that you, you're, you're reestablishing these, uh, species of fish do you, do you monetize that in any way or is it purely for the environmental benefits and that you're doing it purely for the environment environmental benefits and i'd say the greater community not just the human community but the greater community and ecosystem we think that it's the right thing to do and we do allow public fishing in one of our reservoirs and always have and that's something we're proud of you know that a lot of people will come and ask if they can spread a relative's ashes up there because they've been fishing up there for generations so it's in and and we do the same with with hunting you know it's a five week uh general season hunting season and two of those weeks is open to the public which um we have limited number of slots so that everyone gets their own area of the ranch and it's quality hunt and we really try and maximize our harvest rate for managing the elk population and um we work closely with fish, wildlife, and parks, and there's an area wildlife management group that we're a part of and that my uncle helped found called Devil's Kitchen that's been very successful in like establishing season regs and guidelines. And um <clears throat> and so we're we're very involved with with just wildlife wildlife management and um in a way that's proactive and and includes a community. And we've worked with fish, wildlife, and parks, not just in that one reservoir, but in, we're, we're at the headwaters of the main watershed that eventually ends up in the Missouri River. Mm -hmm. And so we've worked with fish, wildlife, and parks to reestablish cutthroat trout, not just in that reservoir, but in a lot of these headwaters, um, which it's over 40 plus miles of stream that we've rehabbed wow. cutthroat trout, which is a threatened native trout here in Montana. Huh. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm curious on the wildlife side, has 
your management increased wildlife have uh, populations to a point that eventually almost becomes a hindrance to your grazing enterprises at all? I mean, you talked about the elk herds and your your haying stuff there. That's I don't know. It seems like a big struggle out west in some areas. It's a it's a total hindrance. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean the elk the elk cost us a lot. I mean they I calculated they ate three hundred to five hundred ton. Wow. This last this last August and our, for us to get hay delivered cheapest would be 300 bucks. Wow. Yeah. $90,000 expense. Yep. (laughs) Pretty quick. (laughs) Minimum. Um, and of course the damage on fences and all of that. And really it's just, we all love, love elk here. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's what's scary about the situation that we're in is that they, the herd's gotten so large. It's a, the area set herd is like 4,500 head. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they, so the annual recruitment rate, I don't even know what it is now. It was 500 head. I'm sure it's much higher now, meaning the number of breeding elk coming back into the herd yeah. annually is, was 500 head, which meant that in order to just like keep the herd numbers at a plateau, mm-hmm. we'd have to harvest 500 head of elk. That's like, and the whole community is working together to try and do that. And we have a six month hunting season, basically, uh, with, with an extended season to just try and make that happen. It's almost impossible. Really? So that's, what's, that's, what's really hard that wow. because once the elk population gets to a certain, and there, there's a lot of other frustrations, like the elk will beat us to our grazes first many times, especially during they're trying to breed the same time our cows are. And so they can go wherever they want. It used to be a, a big no, no to take our cows down to the hay field during breeding season, but we're having to do that now to just beat the cow, beat the elk. Yeah. So we're supplementing our cows instead of supplementing them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, keeping polywire up during the rut is, um, it's impossible. And so yeah. we're trying to get more permanent infrastructure in, in certain places. And it's, yeah, yeah it's tough. Hmm. And have you been able to, I mean, I know people talk about hunting sales and whatnot and stuff. Do you think, it seems like there's so many people that want to hunt elk that that 600 or 500 or 600 elk or whatever it is, you could pretty easily find somebody to come out and hunt them and and almost make some good money on it. But I'm sure it's not as simple as what it's, you know, as that. So No, it's not. So, you know, they, um, elkers, they're so smart. So we're in the middle of hunting season right now Mm -hmm. in Fish, Wildlife, and Parks has a bunch of collars on these elk to just track their behaviors. Mm-hmm. And oh, a few days ago, there was a pile of them. They were up at 7,800 feet. And here we are in the middle of winter. Yeah. No one's going to be able to get on them. Okay. It's, they're, they're so smart. Hmm. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah. We've been struggling with this question and conundrum for 10 years now and haven't come come up sure. with the we meaning meaning like the entire community in the state yeah and yeah <laughs> there isn't an easy answer yeah, yeah. stuff no that's <clears throat> that's i don't know if i want to say too bad i mean it's it's neat that i don't know it's probably i'm sure it's a struggle but uh um no is there anything else in the wildlife piece that i i haven't that that was would be worth mentioning no i don't think so Okay. Then the last thing I, I'd just ask about would be the people side. Um, 
you've got a, it's a family business. So you can maybe talk about some of the fi- family dynamic struggles. I don't know if you hire people in addition to that, but uh, yeah, the the family or the the people side of the business. Yeah, so um, it is a family business. Um, I manage the operations and have uh, since twenty fourteen. My uncle Chase is the president, and he managed the ranch for forty five years or so. And then, so of Uncle Chase's generation, there's three brothers. It's my Uncle Chase, my dad, my Uncle Witt. And dad and Uncle Witt um, not only serve on the board, but they are intimately involved in, I shouldn't say intimately, they help out with operations whenever they can and whenever we need them to. But really the backbone of the crew is all non-family members. Um, So all of my coworkers, there's five of us full-time, full-timers, and there'll be 13 of us in the busy season um everyone's basically non non non-family and so what i see my role in is we're not only striving to create resiliency in our soil and resiliency in our genetics and resiliency in our bank account but also resiliency in our people Mm -hmm. and so hiring people that are passionate about what we're doing and providing a good place to work and live with a sense of purpose and really feeling like they're they're doing something and accomplishing something that's that's what we're we're trying trying to do here and then on the family end of it i see kind of we went from you know the three brothers ahead of me to myself and my brother and two cousins and we all love and care about the ranch dearly but we're all also very well kudos to the generation above me saw the writing on the wall of how ranches don't really survive past generation three usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they started doing a lot of front end work on, on, okay, well, how, how do we, how do we be proactive about this? Like the, the elephant in the room, what do we do? And so we have a family constitution. We have annual family meetings every year. We put a, a conservation easement, on majority of the ranch and just going through the process of putting a conservation easement on the ranch was a very good exercise for us as a family. Um, very difficult, but I think at the end of the day, we all, everyone was able to gain, gain a lot of trust and love and support for everybody realize how much this place means to us. And so all of my generation is on board. Um, I'm here intimately involved with the main operation. My brother, manages a summer operation that we have um and then my cousin serves on the board and helps out when he can and and then the sixth generation what's on our shoulders is to cultivate the same emotional and spiritual attachment to this place in the sixth generation and these are kids that are spread out all over the state so doing that to where they could never see this place leave or be cut off you know that it's just it's their identity, much like how it is mm-hmm. for us. That's our focus. And so we started um, these last two years ago, we started a ranch camp for the sixth generation to come and spend a week at the ranch and just be ranch kids, you know, mm-hmm. learn how to catch fish and gut fish and That's light cool. fires and cook steak over fires and yeah. um, yeah. Uh, find forage for edible plants and just just be kids and get their hands dirty you know in a place that's pretty special so that's 
that's what we're striving to do for our own family and also just trying to yeah create a just a special place to live and work for everyone involved you know mm-hmm. now that's such a interesting challenge that i don't know I, the secession conversation and how people decide to do that i mean i, I was i think it's the matador ranch maybe uh no not the matador the i don't even remember now um the one with the i can't trey uh dr trey patterson and stuff he talks a lot of the padlock that's right yep yeah i mean he talks a lot about their model which i thought was very interesting the first time i've ever heard that where it's it's a business entity owned uh, and it kind of independently that the family still owns but none they they kind of it sounds like have in a way mastered the same similar kind of a thing that you're trying to do which is engage the family in the ranch and so that it's not lost the the love and the passion for it but also maintain its ability to carry through the generations without being split and you know split and split generation after generation and it's such a real challenge Uh, yeah it's very real yeah yeah um well i really appreciate this conversation like i said before the call i I could go another uh, there's so much more we could talk about but it's already been over an hour here and i respect your time and and uh, and whatnot as well but uh thank you this was this was really good um is there anything last kind of thoughts that I haven't asked you about that you think would be worth sharing? Not that comes to mind. No. Okay. Thank okay. you, Jared. Yeah. Well then two questions I like to ask everybody here, the, the, uh, kind of wrap up would be one is what resources, and that can be anything from a conference book podcast, anything that have been important to you or that you would recommend people check out if they, uh, I guess in general, it doesn't have to be specific to agriculture or pursuing a career in ranching, but just, yeah, resources. Well, I would say that Johann Zeitzman's book, Man Cattle Veld, has had the biggest impact on on me. Um, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I would I would say that that's that's been my my biggest resource in the last last decade. Just adding that to my list here. No, that's one I I'm not sure if we've had that one yet. So. That's a good one. Um, yeah. Last question then is how can people learn more or find out more or reach out if they have any more questions or is there anything that you want to use this opportunity to plug anything like that? Oh, we're pretty private. I don't, okay. yeah, I don't, <laughs> we, we do have a website, um, stevenlivestock.com and we're hoping to revamp that this winter and, you know, there's continues to be interest in our winter grazing workshops and mm. and we'll post that information on online but we don't have any social media accounts we don't we don't do any of that um we are part of a local local meat business um it's mm. starting to gain quite a bit of steam here in the helena area called old salt and we will be having a festival this next summer in in montana so it would, it'll be like a food and music festival a mm. two or three day event with speakers and it'll be educational on a lot of the same stuff what we've been talking about um and just trying to use food as a connection between ur- urban and rural divide mm. and i that's think that awesome. that's something really neat and exciting that we're doing um or a part of not that we're doing it we're a part of and if people happen to be in Montana in, in June, they should look up that festival. It's a yeah. old salt, old salt co-op is what it's called. Oh, awesome. 
No, that's fantastic. Uh, really, again, just appreciate it. You brought a ton of value to to this. I, I'm, I'm excited to to share it out, and I'll, uh, I, I just really appreciate it. Thanks, Cooper. Thank you, Jared. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.